Hello everyone and welcome to the show. This is Blight and Stories in the Key of Decay and Repair. I am Sean Williamson and I created this show with a little, a lot of help from my friends. Uh, we performed this next story, uh, The Street Lights Flickered, a few weeks before I moved my entire family from Milwaukee to New York City, um, Queens actually, and they wanted to move. I didn't drug them or anything. But yeah, we uh, performed this story at this uh, great spot in Milwaukee called VAR Gallery. And some friends showed up, and my parents dropped in surprisingly, which is great. But the story is mostly about some like lost soul drinking and fighting and driving drunk and being alone and a bunch of other scary shit for parents to hear. But they took it in stride. <laughs> you know, I mean, I guess sometimes you just have to scare the shit out of your parents. Uh, music on this one by Sean Stefani, who is an incredible person and my favorite, one of my favorite collaborators, I'd say. I think so. We've worked on a couple audio projects and co-co-co-directed a music video with Heather Haas. And, I don't know, he's just like the best person to drop down the rabbit hole with, as they say. Do they say that? I don't know. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, Please visit our Patreon page. Give us some iTunes reviews, all that. This is Blight, Episode 2, The Streetlights Flickered. The Streetlights Flickered by Sean Williamson Produced by Sean Williamson and Robert Tretton Recorded with Shane Olivo at Bobby Peru Recording Original music by Sean Stefani I walked down a cement hallway Painted a slick green-blue passing through the basement laundry room, dryers on one side and washers on the other, facing each other in silent council. Then I trotted up four tall steps and slammed through a hollow metal door leading to the apartment building's empty back parking lot where I had locked my bicycle. But I stopped when I saw the streetlights flicker. Those lights, God, how they glowed grew and dimmed one after the other on the wooded street lined with working-class south-side two-story houses. The lights pulsed above the street in a long descending line, away from the train tracks, under the overpass, and out of sight. But there was no one there to see it but me. The world was silent except the rustling trees and 5 a.m. commuters on the distant highway. Pardon me wanted to walk up to one of the dark houses and bang on the front door until someone answered and scream, Are you seeing this? Instead... I got on my bike and raced the sunrise back to my house. Three nights ago I was at work. I bounced at a neighborhood bar in Bayview by the port. It was foggy that night, like most nights, and I was taking out the trash when I heard a man yelling in the distance. I thought he was somewhere near the train tracks, which was near the street I first saw the lights flicker. He was yelling in a small distant voice like listening to someone screaming through headphones with the volume way down. The voice was hostile, frantic, and cutting. It said, I'm tired of this, you rat! Come here already! At least, that's what I thought I heard. Besides that, I couldn't understand what he was saying. It all sounded foreign, like a string of beckoning grunts and crude instructions, like he was yelling at a dog. He kept yelling and yelling. I looked up and down the cross streets, but I couldn't see anyone. It occurred to me in that moment that he could be yelling at me, and with a slow dread I stumbled back toward the front door of the bar. I jammed on the handle, and it was locked. 
It was locked. I must have locked the door and locked myself out of the bar. Then the light on the front door went out and I was alone in the dark on the street. I quickly got on my bike and rode home. That morning, after I saw the lights, I got in the shower and let the water run over me. I plugged my ears and thought deep down, listening for the low, panging sound of water hitting my skin. I couldn't hear anything, and I eventually turned off the water and dried in front of the mirror. There were toy boats and foam letters on the corner ledge of the tub and water crayons on a small suction tray to the shower wall. A rubber training toilet with a frog on the front sat next to the real toilet. I opened the mirror medicine cabinet and my girlfriend's contact case and eyeliner and a pack of Q-tips and tampons sat peacefully on the little metal shelves. I closed the cabinet and looked into the mirror. I felt like I was looking at my reflection for the first time and I couldn't recognize it, but it blinked. Later, I sat on the floor in my son's room and folded his laundry and after that put his blocks and his knickknacks and rubber dinosaurs and whatever and a hamper at the foot of his bed. I pulled out the drawers to his dresser, star stickers on each handle knob, and organized his clothes. Socks and pajamas in the top drawer, shirts and onesies in the second drawer, pants and shorts in the bottom drawer. He's getting so goddamn unique. He's got hair like a wild man, trying to say all sorts of things. What a guy. I folded a pair of striped overalls and stuck them in the drawer. I smiled. On Monday, before I saw the lights, my girlfriend and son flew away. They went to Florida to visit her aunt in Fort Lauderdale. I talked to them a lot the day they landed and the day after that, but since I seemed to keep missing them, I would hear the phone ringing when I was in the shower or when I was in the backyard with the dog. When I called back, I would always get her voicemail. They were safe, I assumed. The last night I talked to her, she told me they were eating lobsters and bagels and tuna fish bialis, and that he had been asking for me in his sleep. He was two, and I had never spent this much time away from him. A record spun on the turntable in the dining room, on top of a wooden council I bought from the St. Vinnie's by the Forest Home Cemetery. For some reason the needle was stuck, hanging a quarter inch above the vinyl, Shadows and rings twirling as shiny ribbons of light danced between the grooves. I knelt down and watched the record spin, then pressed my finger to the lever. The needle arm lowered and touched the vinyl, and still no sound came from the speakers, just a slight hiss and crackle of lost energy waves moving through split black and red wires. I didn't remember there being a problem with the needle. I thought it must have just worn down. I had been so busy. I gave up and put my thumb to the long, thick, rectangular button on the receiver. As I let go, the button popped out, guided by a spring, with a satisfying shh. I walked to the kitchen and opened the refrigerator door. I realized I wasn't hungry and closed it. Late on Tuesday, the night after they left, I walked the dog to the park. Carter was a hound lab and a rescue dog. Hikers found him alone beaten and tied to a tree in the Kenai Forest outside of Seward, Alaska. I adopted him five years ago when I was on vacation with an old girlfriend. When I got home late at night, after closing the bar or carrying on or whatever, I would take the dog to the park. That night I was drunk, and Carter trotted next to me as I walked and smoked a cigarette. My neighborhood was almost silent, 
An ambulance whirred in the distance, moving closer and closer, until it passed our street, never coming into view. The faint hue of spinning red lights rippled across the tree line and retreated into the night. Above, strong clouds moved quickly across the sky, which was strange, because down on the street, there was no wind. After the ambulance had passed, a different sound came from a block down. There was a log cabin-style house with a tall fence around the yard. An empty flagpole stood above the house's roof. It never seemed like anyone was home, and next door was an empty church with a chain and a padlock on the front door. It was a modest chapel with a small steeple and a sad plexiglass case bulletin board in the front yard. God is still in control, it read in sun-faded beige letters, the words clipped to a rippled fabric mat. The sound, though, the sound was coming from the house on the corner, from the empty flagpole, a metal washer on the long rope that led from the base to the ball on top, bowed and slapped back against the pole in the wind. It bounced off the metal, and the sound resonated through the air, tickling slightly hairs on the back of my ears. And with every step toward the house and toward the park, I felt a real and growing shaking fear. I feared that the clanging washer against that pole, pushed by the wind in what seemed a disturbingly windless night, was trying to tell me something. After I closed the refrigerator, I walked to the window. I looked down on the street. There were no cars. I called my girlfriend and the phone rang and rang and rang and rang and then went to a busy signal. I thought about the time before I was a father, just 20 years old, when I lived in a one-bedroom attic apartment on Wheel Street. There was an open window in the shower, just a small, shuttered window with a broken lever. I could have fixed it or had the landlord fix it, but I didn't. In the winter, I left it open and walked around my apartment in bare feet and basketball shorts. As I stood in a barren kitchen and cooked tomato soup, I could see my breath. My toes would turn red as I sat on the one folding chair in my living room and smoked rolled cigarettes while watching the 9 o'clock news on a fake wooden paneled click-clack dial television. Back when I wasn't sure what it meant to be alone, and I was too young to know or care or consider. The day before I saw the lights, I met an old friend for lunch. We worked together years back at a call center in Racine. Our job was to call old people and get them to donate money to polar bears or rainforests or political campaigns or whatever. He called me out of the blue that morning and asked me to meet him. So we met at a bowling alley way south on Howell, past the airport, where the apartment buildings and strip malls faded out. Subdivisions bled in through cornfields and shuttered roadhouses and construction developments lining each side of the road. The bowling alley was across the road from the Sikh temple some dumbass shot up a few years back. You could see the round, golden, pointy orbs over a set of hills at the end of a paved road. My friend was a black guy. He was bald and wore a striped blue polo. He chewed his nails and shook his other hand, a silver Rolex jangling on his wrist. His house had just burned down. It was one of those new places, too, with the tall kitchen island and vaulted ceilings and carpeted staircases and a wraparound driveway with stone retaining walls, some sort of electrical thing, and the whole house just burned down. We sat for a while, and I ate popcorn from a dish on the bar 
and watch one lonely, overweight glasses guy roll by himself in the lane closest to the end. From the moment I noticed him, he hadn't broken routine. Approach, throw, crash, walk back, wipe hands, wait for his ball, pick it up, approach, throw, crash, on and on like that, without stopping. I tried to ignore him, tried letting the crashing pins become a punctuation in the room's ambiance. A giant mural of bowling pins and neon balls and laser beams and squiggles stretched from the foul line all the way down the alley to the wall. My friend talked about the fire, how we lost everything, and I wondered where the bartender was. It just burned down, in the middle of the night, man. Just like it was gone. I guess I was lucky. I was sleeping at my girlfriend's house, he said. I patted him on the back and kept looking around for the bartender. Arcade games played demos and pinball machines put on silent light shows on the second tier of the bowling alley floor. Are you going to get a drink, he asked. I told him how I was laying off that stuff. That on Wednesday night I drove so drunk I felt like I was floating in my seat and my eyes were so dry they stuck open. They were so dry it was hard to blink. That I had to force my eyelids closed like a grape peeling in reverse. I told him I felt so close to messing up the last few weeks and I was drinking and driving and almost sleeping with other girls and getting in fights. I told him how my hands would be bruised and the inside of my mouth tasted a little like copper. On mornings, I couldn't totally remember where I got off the bus or what. I told him I couldn't remember what day I had stayed up all night and was so drug sick I laid in bed for hours and thought about death. Not my own death exactly, but the idea of death. I told him I called my girlfriend the morning after I drove home seeing double and that I woke up on the dining room floor, the record skipping on the turntable told him how I called her in that moment just to know I hadn't ruined everything. I wanted to hear her voice and my son's voice, to know I was still here and she was still here and my boy was still here and they loved me, but she didn't answer and she hadn't answered since. My friend shook his wrist and looked around for the bartender. My girlfriend's on vacation too, he said and laughed on the inhale. In my apartment, I stepped away from the window and walked toward the front hall where the stairs led to the street. It was quiet in the middle of the day. No lawnmowers or dogs barking or cars zipping by. Just the wind brushing past the screen door and the distant sound of a man arguing. Like the man I had heard a few nights back. I'm tired of this, you rat! Come here already! I took one step down the stairs. As if a dense cloud passed over the midday sun, the hallway dimmed into cool shadow. I tried to remember who I was visiting in the apartment building the first time I saw the lights flicker and thought more and more that the man yelling in the fog was yelling at me. That man, I thought, was waiting somewhere outside. I walked down the stairs and the hallway went dark as I opened the door. (laughs) ¶¶